We are going to study the book of Luke now. We finished our tour through the Old Testament, what we were calling the meta-narrative of Scripture. Meta-narrative, a term philosophers use for the story that explains all other stories. And the secular world rejects the idea of a meta-narrative. They say there, there is no story that explains all of reality. Um, of course, if you think about it, that is a meta-narrative. By saying there is no explanation for everything, you've just made an explanation for everything. So you can't escape a meta-narrative. Uh, the question is then, what is the correct meta-narrative? And we believe since God created everything, he has to reveal to us the truth about everything, the truth about creation, the truth about life, the truth about our fallenness, the truth about our redemption through faith in Christ. And as Will was sharing this morning, it all goes back to the Word of God. God reveals to us Himself through this meta narrative. The Old Testament wraps up in the book of Malachi. We said actually the oldest writings, uh, uh, the oldest history in the Old Testament recorded in Nehemiah, but the last the last book in Malachi. And then we say there was 400 years of silence. Certainly God wasn't silent. He's still working in history. But uh, until we get to the Gospels, 400 years of history passed. And we often call them the, the silent years or the 400 silent years. And so we, before we jump into Luke, I think it would be helpful just to briefly... Uh, cover what happened in those 400 years. It's kind of like when you go to the next installment in the Star Wars saga and the yellow words scroll across the screen and let you know what's been happening. Um, what happened during the intertestamental period? That's what theologians call that 400 years. Intertestamental between the Testaments, between the Old Testament and New I want to recommend to you a, a website that I find helpful. It's called gotquestions.org. Gotquestions.org. I've been very pleased with their level of scholarship, their approach to handling the scriptures. We're obviously using the same uh, hermeneutical principles or interpretive principles because when they finish answering the question, it's basically the way I would have answered the question and the other commentators that I read and trust. But what I like about this website is it's, it's designed so that if you have a Bible question and you put it in the search box, um, a, a nice brief answer will come up with Scripture and then links to more questions you should be asking. It's technically designed for unbelievers to kind of stumble onto the website and hear about Christ. But if you're looking for um, some good answers to some Bible questions, try gotquestions.org. And so I'm going to introduce it to you this morning by reading to you a part of their answer to the question, what happened during the intertestamental period? I just typed that in, boom, it came up. And pretty much any time I have a question and put it in, they've answered it. Uh, that tells me they're thinking about the same questions that I'm thinking about. A lot of what Daniel prophesied would happen in the book of Daniel...
came to pass during the intertestamental period. Israel was under control of the Persian Empire, right? That's where we kind of left things off. And um, the Persian emperor allowed Ezra and Nehemiah to return back to the land, rebuild the temple, rebuild the walls, and, and worship the way God uh, revealed to Israel he wanted to be worshipped. All that changed, though, when Alexander the Great defeated Darius of Persia. Um, that would be about 100 years into the 400 years of silence. You know that name from history, maybe vaguely, Alexander the Great, you know, conquered most of the known world. He was very influenced by Aristotle. He loved Greek philosophy, Greek thinking, the Greek language. And so he wanted his empire to be Greek. Everybody spoke Greek. Greek customs, Greek political thought saturated the culture. The neat thing about that was that um, that made a common language by which Jesus Christ could enter the world and the story about him could spread easily across cultures. In fact, the Hebrews translated the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. That translation is called the Septuagint, Sept 70. The story goes that 70 rabbis all went to separate rooms and began translating the Bible from Hebrew into Greek, which is a difficult task, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Uh, the Hebrew language works a little bit like ours, where the order of the words determine the meaning of the sentence. If I say, Brent kicked ball... That's a lot different than the ball kicked Brent. The word order matters. In Greek, the word order does not matter. And you're like, well, then how do they understand anything? I guess that's why people say it's all Greek to me. What they do is they, they, they put a certain ending on the end of a noun to let you know if it's the subject or the object or the indirect object. And so that way they can move the order of the words anywhere they want in the sentence. Now you see where that created a problem for the translators of the Old Testament. Okay, well, we know what word in Greek we want to use for this word in Hebrew, but where do we put it in the sentence? And so the legend goes that all 70 rabbis emerged from translating the whole Old Testament into Greek, and all 70 manuscripts matched word for word in the right order. It's a legend, it's a myth. It was made up so that people would have confidence in using the Septuagint in place of the Hebrew Scriptures. Let me give you a better source of confidence. Instead of making up stories about the Septuagint, you might be surprised to know that it was Jesus' Bible. When Jesus quoted the Old Testament, most often he was quoting out of the Septuagint. It's... It's such a reliable translation of the Old Testament that my New Testament Greek professor would jokingly say, why do you guys go to that Hebrew class across the hall? We have the Septuagint. And he'd get in these, these fun arguments with the Old Testament professors. After Alexander died, Judea was ruled by a series of successors culminating in Antiochus Epiphanes. Do you know this name from history? He's famous for oppressing 
the Jews, not allowing them to uh, practice their religion the way the law of Moses prescribed. He overthrew the rightful line of priests and put Gentile priests in place, culminating in this horrendous event where he slaughtered a pig in the Holy of Holies as a sacrifice to pagan deities. The Bible refers to this event as the abomination of desolations. A a group called the Maccabees, a family called the Maccabees, revolted against Antiochus Epiphany. There's a couple of books, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, that are not part of the canon, but in the Greek Orthodox faith and in the Catholic faith, faith, they include a couple of extra books we call the apocryphal uh, books. Around 63 BC, so we're getting, we're getting close to the birth of Christ, Pompey of Rome conquered Palestine, putting all of Judea under the control of the Caesars. This eventually led to Herod being made king of Judea by the Roman emperor and senate, and this would be the nation that taxed and controlled the Jews and eventually crucified the Messiah. During the span of the Greek and Roman occupations, two important political religious groups emerged in Palestine. You know them as the Pharisees and Sadducees. The Pharisees were in control of the local synagogues. The Sadducees were part of the Sanhedrin that was the ruling council over Jerusalem. The Pharisees had grassroot power. The Sadducees had the political power. The Pharisees taught the whole Old Testament, but unfortunately they also added to the Old Testament their own laws and regulations. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees, right, for adding to the law of Moses and uh, for being legalistic that if we keep these laws perfectly, God will be pleased with us. They also had no compassion on those who found it difficult to keep all the laws and regulations. The Sadducees, on the other hand, They only believed the first five books of the Bible were from God. They rejected the rest of the Old Testament. They said it was just commentary on the first five books of the Bible. Therefore, they refused to believe in the resurrection. So here's the strange uh, environment in which Jesus is born. This set the stage for Christ to be born because both Jews and pagans were becoming dissatisfied with religion. The pagans were beginning to question the validity of polytheism. Romans and Greeks were drawn from their own Greek mythology to the stories of the Old Testament. And now they could read the Old Testament because the scriptures were written in Greek now, in the Septuagint. The Jews, however, were were despondent over their faith It was hard to keep all the Pharisees' regulations and laws. It was a heavy burden. And there was so much corruption at the temple, people profiting off of the sacrificial system. Not only that, but they were once again conquered and oppressed by a pagan nation. Everyone was waiting for Messiah to come, but not the Messiah as we know him, the Messiah that brings salvation to those who place their faith in him for the forgiveness of sins, they were waiting for a geopolitical Messiah who would conquer Rome 
conquer all their enemies, set everything straight. That was their view of salvation. And so this sets the table for Jesus to enter the picture. We've decided to preach through the Gospel of Luke. Luke starts the story right where Malachi leaves off. Remember at the end of Malachi, it says, I am sending you Elijah, a prophet. And it turns out, according to Jesus, that that Elijah-like prophet is John the Baptist. And so Luke picks up the story right where the Old Testament leaves off, and he makes that connection. Certainly, we, we could... We could read Matthew, a Hebrew tax collector, a disciple of Jesus. We could read Mark, although we preached through that a couple years ago. We don't pit one gospel account over and above another. We're choosing Luke because Luke also wrote Acts. And if we're going to continue looking at how the meta narrative unfolded, it would be great to go through Luke, the life of Christ, and then right into Acts, the launching of the Christian church and the fulfillment of the Great Commission. So that's where we're headed. So a little introduction to Luke. Who was Luke? Why was he writing? Luke is a physician, uh, different than physicians of today. Obviously, they didn't understand human anatomy and physiology the way uh, we did, and yet a scholar nonetheless. And that's the important thing I want you to take out of him being a physician. He's, He's a scholar. He's trained to carefully investigate the facts. He was a Gentile, probably from Antioch, and a friend of the Apostle Paul. Certainly, Paul was one of his primary sources. Luke wrote his gospel in the book of Acts as an orderly account, he says, an orderly account of the life of Christ and establishment of the church to a friend named Theophilus. Theophilus, what a great name. That means lover of God. Next boy born in the church, I want a Theophilus. (laughs) He probably wrote around A.D. 60. They didn't date their letters back then the way we date our letters. So you have to use a little investigative work to figure out when these letters were written. We believe it was written in A.D. 60, um, among other reasons, because Luke never mentions the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. If you're going to write Acts, an orderly account of the history of the Christian faith, and you saw the destruction of the temple you would have written about it. As a side note, liberal scholars place the dating of Luke after A.D. 70 because in Luke's gospel, Jesus predicts that the temple is coming down. No stone will be left unturned. And if we could have seen that temple and knowing uh, no modern machinery and that it took 40 some odd years for Herod to build that temple. The thought of that temple coming down was preposterous. And it came down. And so modern liberal scholars say, well, there's no way anyone could have predicted that. Therefore, um, 
probably Luke wrote Acts after AD 70, after the temple came down, and then pretended not to, to, didn't mention it, so it would look like it was actually prophesied by Christ. And that's how liberal scholarship often works. You see something supernatural in the Bible that can only be explained through supernatural means, and they immediately have to look for nat- a natural explanation. In A.D. 64, Emperor Nero, you're familiar with that name, heavy persecution of the Christian church, terrible persecution, would, would dip Christians in wax and light them on fire as tiki torches during his personal parties. Luke doesn't write anything about Nero's persecution. You think he would have mentioned that. And so we say he probably wrote before A.D. 64. In A.D. 62, James, the half-brother of Jesus, author of the book of James and the leader of the Jerusalem Council, was martyred. Again, Luke doesn't mention that in the book of Acts. And so we keep moving the date back. And we we think around A.D. 60 or 61 is when Luke wrote the book of Luke. All four gospel writers write about the same events, and many of the stories overlap, but they all take kind of a different tact, a different angle, a different focus. Matthew writes about Jesus as king, being, being a Jew. He's the Davidic king. Mark portrays Jesus as the suffering servant. He has that line that the Son of Man came to what serve and not be served and give his life as a ransom for many. John wrote his gospel at the end of his life, near the turn of the century, and it was more of a spiritual focus on Jesus, his divinity, that he's the Son of God. Luke's focus is more on the humanity of Jesus, and that makes sense as a physician, right? He writes more about Jesus' miraculous healings. I can only imagine as a doctor how many times he was frustrated that he couldn't heal someone. And here comes this man, Jesus, and boom, you're healed. That must have been compelling to a physician. He also records more of Jesus' parables than the other writers. I'm, I'm excited when we get into the parables, some of my favorite portions of Scripture to preach. The first four verses of Luke's Gospel is a prologue, the opening to the letter. And one might ask, what is there to preach in a prologue? What is there to preach in a prologue? And yet, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable, even the prologue. And so I'm preaching the prologue this morning. I was a little intimidated in my sermon prep. And God quickly alleviated my concerns. There is plenty in the prologue to preach. It's a lot of peace. Um, This morning I want to provide you with three reasons for us to trust the Scriptures as a reliable source of knowledge about the life, ministry, and teachings of Christ so that we can have confidence in the Scriptures as we make disciples. We have this... Big focus on discipleship this fall. This discipleship class Nathan and I are teaching. 
two sermons, back to back Sundays, on making disciples. And remember this making disciples is redemptive, it is salvation. It's not you get saved and then maybe you become a disciple. Getting saved means becoming a disciple of Christ. It means recognizing I need to be a disciple of Christ. It means I don't know the truth on my own. Only Christ has the truth. I don't know the way. Only Christ has the way. I don't have life without Christ. It's not an option, discipleship. It is the life of the Christian. And yet, if we can't be confident in the Scriptures, then how do we make disciples? Without the Scriptures, when I disciple someone, I'm merely making a disciple of Brent. Which, for some, may sound good and others scary. We are not called to make disciples of ourselves. We're called to make disciples of Christ, teaching them to obey all that He has commanded And so we need to know the Scriptures and have confidence in the Scriptures. Some false religions and cults that have their quote-unquote Scriptures or their holy books try to convince people to have confidence in their Scriptures uh, by saying, you'll just know deep in your heart that they're true. And certainly we could say the same about the Scriptures. I know they're true because, as um, Will read in Hebrews, it's able to pierce, pierce deep into the soul and discern the thoughts and the heart of man in ways that no other book I've ever read is able to do. But that's not what makes it true. The Bible is the Word of God because the Bible says it's the Word of God. It's self-attesting. You say, well, come on, that's circular reasoning. We won't go over this today, but all reasoning eventually is circular. You can't get away from it when you're talking about ultimate things. And yet, God gave us a book that is true history, carefully recorded, And we can look back from other historical sources and see that the history is well attested. As one commentator said, every shovel of dirt unturned in the Holy Land agrees with the Scriptures. Archaeologists have never found anything that undermined the veracity of the Scriptures. In fact, just the contrary. The Prophecies and predictions come true with amazing accuracy. All of these characters are real people. And so, God has given us these things so that our faith is reasonable. It's it's grounded in real history. It's not the facts that have caused me to believe in Christ. We covered that two weeks ago. It's the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit that has caused me to believe in Christ. But what I read from the Scriptures, the evidence that I find undergirds and strengthens my faith. I never read the Scriptures and am embarrassed and say, well, that's not true. 
I'm going to have to figure out how to explain that away. Uh, That never happens when I read the Scriptures. And so, when we get to Luke's Gospel and we find out here's a trained physician writing to a nobleman, he calls Theophilus most excellent Theophilus. That's a title of somebody who is high up in Roman politics. That would be an educated person. Uh, The Greeks were way into education, if you haven't figured that out already. And so here's an educated man writing to another educated man and saying, I'm going to give you an orderly account of what happened so that you will have confidence that what you are reading and what you've been taught about Christ is the absolute truth. And this is important for us, and I'll tell you why. In Genesis 3, when Satan tempted man and woman, he tempted them to lose confidence in the Word of God. Did God really say? That's the first attack. Did God really say? We're asking you to make disciples, to become disciples of Christ, and we're saying this is the book you're going to use. This is the textbook. And so, of course, it's where Satan's going to attack. Did God really say? The second attack, once Eve said, yes, God did say we would die if we ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, was to say, is that what God really meant? Oh, you won't die. You'll just die to ignorance. If you eat from that tree, your eyes will be opened and you'll be able to see things like God sees them. You'll know good and evil. So the attack on God's word, did God really say and did God really mean? The prologue to Luke helps me answer the question, did God really say? Yes, this is how it actually happened. The life of Christ is attested by eyewitnesses and well-documented. It's not like the cults where there's one man or one woman who had a vision that nobody can confirm. And that vision was turned into this whole religion. No, Christianity is grounded in the eyewitness account of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. Carefully written down, not too long after Jesus left the earth. The eyewitnesses were still around, and if they wrote anything that was not consistent with the truth, the eyewitnesses would have said, no, no, I was there. That's not how it happened. That's not what he said. Whether or not you decide to believe in the Scriptures, you'll have to work out with God. But don't for a second be fooled into thinking that what we have here isn't what really happened. You can't play that game. It says what it says, means what it means. It's it's the truth. Luke says, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, many have undertaken." Matthew, Mark, many have undertaken. There's other quote-unquote gospels that 
are not in the canon because we don't consider them inspired by God. But Jesus was the most compelling man in human history. You think people wrote about him, talked about him, asked questions about him, told stories about him. Many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the Lord. We have eyewitness testimony. Luke himself, not an eyewitness, but Luke interviewing the eyewitnesses. I want to cover a little bit the doctrine of inspiration here. Some might say at this point, well, it was written down by a man. Yes, indeed, all of Scripture written down by men. But the doctrine of inspiration, most clearly laid out in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That word inspired is not the word Inspired we think of when we see a beautiful sunset and say, I was inspired to write this song or I was inspired to paint this picture. Inspiration in the Greek is theosnustas, God breathed. In a supernatural way, God breathed the scriptures into the writers as they wrote. In the same way that God breathed the breath of life into man to animate him and give him life. God gives life to the scriptures. We call the scriptures the living word of God. It's God breathed. Second Peter 1.20 Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Some might ask, well, how do we know those passages aren't just talking about the Old Testament? How do we know the New Testament is also Scripture? 2 Peter 3.15, there should be a 2 on the front of the Peter. 2 Peter 3.15 we pick up Peter's writing and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, whatever the things Peter was talking about before 3.15, in which are some things hard to understand. I love that. It's one of my favorite lines in the Bible, by the way. Peter thought some of Paul's writings were hard to understand. And it makes me feel not so dumb. If one of the apostles found Paul's writings hard to understand, we're all in good company. The point of the passage, though, it comes in the end of the sentence. Which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. See what? Peter's doing there. He just put Paul's writings in the same category as the rest of the scriptures. The apostles knew they were writing scripture. So who wrote, God or man? 
Yes, thank you. Yes. Dual authorship. Scripture is written by man, but superintended by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, all Scripture has a human author and a divine author. The doctrine of inspiration includes the personalities and the life history and the writing style of the human authors. But the divine authorship assures us that the Bible is inerrant, without errors, and infallible. And when we say inerrant, we we say in the original manuscripts, but we have confidence that what you're holding in your hands is so close to the original manuscripts as to not have to doubt that what we're reading is the Word of God. The second point I want you to see this morning is that Luke was a careful scholar who had access to the full story of Christ. Luke 1.3, It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you, Uh, The NAS says, in consecutive order. I don't think that's the best translation of the Greek. Uh, Other translations say, an orderly account. Most excellent, Theophilus. I already spoke of this one educated scholar writing to another educated man. And how carefully he would have written. You know men like this. You know women like this. These scholars. These, they just they tunnel in and they dig and no rock is left unturned. And they don't settle for the first draft or the second draft or the third draft. They keep searching. They keep digging. They're relentless. I, I think this is the way Luke was. This church was blessed to have a man in this pulpit for 23 years, who's like that? Uh, Pastor Andy would study, 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 study. Come on out. Get some coffee or something. He was in that office studying, studying, studying. And you knew when he came out that he wasn't guessing. And that's the tradition the elders want to keep in this church. And so we study the scriptures, we teach the scriptures, we put this high priority on scholarship. The school here, Heritage Oak School, a high priority on scholarship and study. Paul, when he was in prison, asked for his scrolls to be sent to him in a coat. He was cold. But it's in the order of, bring me the scrolls. And, I, and probably a coat, too. Man wanted his books. By the way, when I say that consecutive order is not probably the best translation, you need to know that some of the stories in Luke's Gospel are not actually in chronological order. He repackages them thematically. That is, that is not... An error. He's not saying this happened here and lying about it. He'll just move the stories around to group themes together. Friday, my family and I, we, we attended a funeral for uh, a good man here in uh, Tatchby, Dan Gray. 
um, retired LA Fire Department, his wife, Jean Gray, if you're a Bear Valley resident, you know she's on the board out there for many years. Great neighbors. His friend, one of his friends was giving the eulogy, and he said Dan loved to tell stories, and he never let the facts get in the way of a good story. <laughs> and liberal scholars take that human tendency to embellish facts when telling a story and said that must have happened in the Scriptures. I mean, the truth is in there somewhere, but certainly they must have embellished. Let me assure you, nothing of the sort is happening. These men knew they were writing about the Son of God. They, we saw they knew they were writing Scripture. Jesus had trained them in such a way that the highest ethic, the highest ethic, was passed on to them. And like we said, there were eyewitnesses still alive who would have corrected them if wrong. They were known as honest men to a fault. Most of them martyred, would not recant or, or lie about their experiences with Christ. We can trust the scriptures. I don't know if you've ever run into what's called the synoptic problem. I thought I would cover it today. If we're going to be students of the Word, you should know that there are evangelical scholars who believe a little differently than we do. Let me take you back to the 1800s, mid to late 1800s, the German scholastics. So sad, the place where the Reformation happened and the great scholar Martin Luther, just a few hundred years later, the German theologians would just dismantle the Bible. Julius Wellhausen, he's the father of what's called higher criticism. It's kind of an ironic name because it's not higher at all. Uh, lower criticism is the science of determining what are the original words of Scripture. And there's great techniques that can be used when you've got this manuscript of the Old Testament and this one and one letter is off or one word is off. Like, well, how do we know which one? Is, is the correct word. A scribe must have made an error. By the way, those errors are so small that they account for less than one-tenth of one percent of all the scriptures. And those scribal errors never change the meaning of a doctrine at all. That's called lower criticism. Higher criticism was developed by Julius Wellhausen in the 1800s it's, what is the true story behind the Scriptures? Okay, yeah, we have the story, but what really happened? It's assuming that the writers of Scripture embellished and added and redacted so that the story of God would fit some agenda or some other purpose. He, he started this in the Old Testament. He noticed in Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 1 refers to God with the name Elohim, which is kind of the generic 
name for God, Elohim. But when you get to Genesis chapter 2, and it kind of tunnels in on the creation story, the name Yahweh appears. And so he said, maybe a different writer wrote Genesis 1, and, and a separate writer wrote Genesis 2, and Moses wasn't the author of both. And so he ran with that idea. And anywhere you see Elohim in the Bible, he'd say the Elohimist wrote that. And anywhere you see Yahweh, the Yahwehist. In German, uh, the Y is replaced with a J. And so um, it's Jawahist. His students, and the student always takes what the master taught him and takes it to the next level, because that's how you make a name for yourself right, in the university. i got to outdo the last guy. They, they saw a different author in Deuteronomy and a fourth author any time they wrote things about the priesthood. And so it became known as the documentary hypothesis or the JEDP theory. And German scholastics would sit holed up in their offices and try to figure out when the Yahwehist was writing, when the Elohimist was writing, when the Deuteronomist was writing, and when the, the priestly writer was writing. And then, of course, someone added a fifth writer and then a sixth writer. And it's just nonsense. And it just gutted confidence in the scriptures, especially in Germany, and then that passed to England, in Oxford and Cambridge, and then that made it overseas to Harvard and Princeton and when we talk about liberal theology, those are the roots. Well, they decided to do the same thing with the New Testament. And there's this thing called the synoptic problem. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. They're summaries of the life of Jesus. So is John, but John is more of a spiritual focus. If you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke in parallel, there's huge sections of Scripture where they agree word for word. But then all of a sudden, one of the writers will deviate from the word for word telling of that story. And you'll notice that there's some stories in Mark that aren't in Luke or Matthew. But there's some stories in Luke that aren't in Mark and so they call it the synoptic problem. And anytime you give really smart academic people a problem, they're going to spend all their trying trying to solve the problem. Because that's what leads to academic honors. That's how you get a department head named after you, a department chair named after you. And so... The most common, quote-unquote, solution to this problem is called the two-source hypothesis, or Markin priority. It goes something like this. Mark wrote first, because it's the shortest gospel, and evolutionarily, things get more complicated over time, so we'll start with the simplest. Mark wrote first. Matthew and Luke copied from Mark. But then you have a, another problem. There's portions of Matthew and Luke that agree 
that aren't found in Mark. So where did they get their information? There must be this second source, the second document, and the Germans named it Q. I know it's like the, the James Bond movies, right? It's Q. Q. Q stands for quell, which in German means source. And so there's this mythical Q document that still hasn't been found to this day that is supposed to be the key to unlocking the mystery to the synoptic problem. It's like the Yeti or the uh, Sasquatch of evangelical scholarship. They're still looking for the Q document. And every once in a while, some, like the Gospel of Thomas or you know, one of these Dan Brown characters says, I, you know, I found the mist. No, it's not. And people get excited about it for a while. And Time Magazine writes about it. And all it does is erode confidence in the Scriptures, which is exactly Satan's strategy. Erode confidence in the Scriptures. Did God really say that? So here's the problems with the two-document theory. First of all, the church fathers, the early church fathers, you know the ones that like hung out with John, the apostle? They all say Matthew wrote first. I don't even know why we're continuing with the two-document hypothesis. The Q document's never been found. There's a huge section of Mark that's not found in Luke. If Luke was copying Mark, why would he leave out Mark 6.45 to 8.26? It's probably like the meat and potatoes of Mark's gospel. Why would you leave that out? And there's a huge section of Luke that isn't found in either Mark or Matthew. And the problems just persist more and more. So why is he mentioning this to us? Because it's still a popular theory in seminaries and there's pastors and pulpits in Tehachapi churches who adhered to this. It's what they were taught in seminary and they adhered to it. I don't think necessarily that it means that what they're going to eventually preach is wrong. But here's what it tempts you to do. You, you get to a passage, you're going to preach on it, and you go, oh, look, the same passage is in this other gospel. And you read it, and you see some differences. And you're tempted then to say, if you're a two-document hypothesis guy, I wonder why this guy decided not to copy that down exactly like that. What do I know about Mark and the life of Mark? Or what do I know about Luke that would cause him to skip that part of the story? And instead of focusing on what the scriptures mean, you spend all your time on some rabbit trail trying to discern what the story behind the story really is. And you know if you're the inquisitive academic type, that could be very tempting, right? I'm going to see something in here nobody else sees. Folks, if I see something in the Scripture no one else has ever saw for 2,000 years, kick me out of the pulpit. I am not here to break new ground. I'm here to put you on the firm foundation of old ground. Amen? And so they start playing these games with these forms of higher criticism. They have form criticism. They'll look at the, at the form of the writing and say, well, we can tell based on the grammar and vocabulary here that certainly this wasn't Luke. Somebody else put that in there. Or historical criticism. 
How come Matthew's the only gospel writer that talks about Jesus' woes against the Pharisees? Well, Matthew was a tax collector. The Pharisees hated tax collectors. Matthew was getting even with the, tax, with the Pharisees and put that in there even though Jesus never probably said that. Because Jesus is a nice guy and he would never say woe to you, which means you're going to hell. He would never say such a thing. And so those are the games people play. When I was uh, attending UCLA, I, uh, I was not a believer I didn't even know any of this was going on. I needed one more class for my general education requirements. And I didn't have priority in registration. So you kind of take what's left and what fits into your schedule. And there was a class called the Quest for the Historical Jesus. And I said, oh, I grew up in a church. It's got Jesus. This should be an easy A. That that was my thinking. And the whole class was about trying to figure out from the Bible what parts were actually true about the life of Jesus. And God protected me through my unbelief because God is amazing and He works that way. That I didn't have a clue what they were talking about. I wasn't paying attention at all. Somehow I passed the class. I wrote, you just learn how to write papers, right? You learn how to play the game. I was, I was pledging a fraternity that quarter, so I obviously wasn't concentrating on much of anything. And now I understand that that class was all about undermining and eroding the confidence in the Scriptures. And all those young undergraduates coming in from Christian homes, taking this class, and this professor from UCLA telling them, you've been fooled all these years. And so... I want you to know this morning that we can be confident that Luke carefully researched, interviewed eyewitnesses, and gave an orderly account that we can trust. Here's a better solution to the so-called synoptic problem. There is no problem. The Holy Spirit inspired each writer to record exactly what God wanted us to know about the life of Christ, The three synoptic gospels complement one another. You know the parable of the rich young ruler? Well, unless you had all three synoptic gospels, you wouldn't know that he was rich, young, and a ruler. You need all three to know that he was a rich, young ruler. Each one gives us a little bit different part of the story. Together, they give us the fullness of the story. In a storytelling culture, which this was, this was before Barnes and Nobles and Amazon.com, right? This is before TV. People told stories, and you told the same story again and again and again and again and again, and the exact order of the words and the exact words got hammered into your memory. So when you sat down to write an orderly account, of course what came out would be the same as what Mark wrote. More or less word for word. And you've experienced this because anyone who's read a bedtime story to your kid over and over and over again, and then one night because you were fatigued, thought you could skip a page. Mm -mm. That's not how it goes. Well, if you know, you read it. 
No, they want they want you to read it. This is how the human mind works. It's a gift from God. By the way, Mark and Luke were companions of Paul, and the early church met in the home of Mark's mother. These people hung out together. That's why their writing sounds so similar. The third point, and, and the shortest point here, but maybe the most important, Luke wrote specifically that we would have certainty in discipleship. Luke wrote specifically that we would have certainty in discipleship. He says to Theophilus, I'm writing these things in an orderly account so that you might know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Obviously, Theophilus was a believer. He knew enough about Christ to put his faith in Christ for salvation. But like we said, your life with Christ doesn't end with your salvation. It, it just begins. And he wanted his friend to have confidence that what he'd been taught about Christ was the exact truth. And what a great friend. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to research this, and I'm going to write it down in exact account, and I'm going to use... Greek language, whenever he got to a story where Matthew might use some Aramaic or some Hebrew, he stuck to the Greek so his friend, his Gentile friend, would understand in his own language. I have some notes there about the testimonies of Etta Lineman, Josh McDowell, Lee Strobel. What all these people have in common is they're scholars who originally had lost confidence in the scriptures. Etta Lineman was a student of Ru- Rudolf Bultmann, and if you know anything about the German scholastics, he was one of the key players in undermining the veracity of the scriptures. And she was his best student, star student, and then the Holy Spirit removed the scales from her eyes, and she said, it's true, it's all true, it's all true. And she rejected her university, rejected her position, her title, her fame. In fact, she said, burn everything I've ever written. And when you hear a German say, burn every, you know, burn books, it kind of freaks us out, right? Uh, Josh McDowell, his friends in college were trying to lead him to faith. And he's like, oh, tell me any more about your Jesus. And they finally challenged him, look, go take a year, study it, if it's false, we'll leave you alone. And he said, that's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to convert all of them out of Christianity. And out of that study came more than a carpenter, which has led so many people to the Lord. I think like three million copies sold. Lee Strobel, a lawyer trained at the University of Chicago, one of the premier learning institutions in our country, his wife came to Christ after they were married. And he said, uh-uh, nuh-uh, I did not sign up for this. I'm going to use my lawyer skills and prove this book wrong, that it, that's, it's, it's a fraud. And after that study, he comes to Christ. And now a great apologist for the Christian faith wrote Case for Christ, Case for a Creator, has the TV show. You can trust it. It's true. Don't let skepticism stand in the way of receiving Christ as Lord and Savior. Don't let something as 
lame as skepticism, stand in the way of the gift of eternal life. Don't listen to Satan. It's what got our original parents in trouble. You can trust the Word of God. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God, the woman of God, the child of God, would be adequate and equipped for every good work. Amen and amen. Father God, thank you for the Scriptures that speak of you and your Son and eternal life. Forgive us when we doubt. Holy Spirit, give us the strength to believe. In Jesus' name, amen.